Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and I just want to say welcome, special welcome if you're visiting, special welcome if you're watching online with us, uh, hopefully cozy in your home, um, and special welcome to all of you who braved the weather. I'm so proud of all of your uh, tough Minnesotan um, qualities here. All right, so... Uh, as pastors, one of the fun things that Joel and I get to do is premarital counseling. So it's something we highly recommend to anyone who's considering getting married. Uh, and we like to just get together with these couples and kind of talk through different things um, that might be helpful to talk through before they get into marriage. And the material that we use to kind of go through this stuff with them actually has the couples take like a an inventory or assessment of sorts that sort of just gives them some information about themselves and about their, uh, their partner. And one of the things that it tells you is what they call the idealistic distortion. Basically, it just tells you if one member of your couple tends to be a little bit more idealistic than the other. <laughs> And usually what we've seen, not always, but usually, we usually see that there's one person who is definitely more idealistic, and then the other person is maybe a little more realistic. And if you have ever <laughs> talked to me and Joel about kind of where we land on that, you might guess that Joel tends to be the more idealistic in our relationship, uh, and I tend to be a little bit more I like to say realistic. I don't like to use the word pessimistic, but I like to use the word realistic. So when we started talking about this wisdom series and who was going to kind of take which parts of it, you can bet that when we got to the Ecclesiastes part, I was like, I, I feel like I can resonate with some of the things that he says. Uh, I'll definitely, I'll jump in on that. And so I'm gonna, we'll get to the kind of some of the things he says and you'll see why maybe that would be true for me. Um, <laughs> because as we get into it, you'll see Ecclesiastes is not an idealistic book. Um, it is <laughs> definitely, you see in Proverbs, we've talked a lot about kind of the, um, you know, this like, if you do these things, if you do follow wisdom, then these good things will happen. And if you do what is good, then good will kind of happen in your life. And Ecclesiastes is here to sort of say, will it? And even if it does, does any of it really matter? Uh, and so if you've ever found yourself asking those questions, you are definitely not alone in that. Um, it is something that many people have wrestled with, including people in scripture, people who actually helped write the scriptures. So definitely not a bad question to ask. And as we jump into the passage, um, I want to talk a little bit about who in scripture is asking these questions or who is kind of doing the talking in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the, the book starts off with the preface, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And some translations might say the preacher, uh, some say the teacher. The word there really kind of more accurately translates to the assembler, so kind of the one who brings the people together to give them some kind of message. He assembles all the people to kind of teach them or, or give them these ideas. And there's an interesting thing in the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll notice that there are the words of the teacher or the assembler. And then there's also, there also seems to be this author that's sort of like framing the book for you, framing what the teacher has to say. 
So we get that just a little bit in the very beginning of the book, but the author of the book is actually going to come back at the end and kind of give its like, here's the takeaway, here's what you should learn from the teacher. And so we'll get to that at the end. Joel's going to um, tackle that one. Uh, but mostly today, we're going to be hearing from the teacher. I'm going to call him that. Uh, the, again, the word is really assembler. It's really kind of a strange word. Um, but we're going to call him the teacher. And many people traditionally think of the teacher as Solomon. So Joel talked, if you were here last week, um, or if you missed it, you can go back and watch it on our YouTube channel or on the podcast. Um, but Joel talked a lot about Solomon, who he was. He's the guy who wrote the Proverbs, kind of what his life looked like. And many people think that he wrote this book as well. The hard part with that is that, as Joel talked about last week, Solomon kind of ended his life in a not-so-great place, right? He wasn't really following God, probably wasn't thinking a ton about the things that the person in Ecclesiastes is thinking about. Um, and traditionally, people will say, like, well, maybe this is him in his old age. He's repented, he's changed his tune, and now he's here to give us this message. And while that is a great idea, uh, we don't actually have any, like, evidence that that's for sure the case. Could be. That could be what happened. Uh, but we're not entirely sure. So what do we do with that? Who do we think this person is? Uh, I would tend to say I think it's actually someone who's kind of taking on a Solomon-like persona. So he's kind of standing in place of all of the kings of Israel, all of the assemblers, the people who have brought the Israelites together at times to teach them, to give them directives, or talk to them about different things. Um, and the, the speaker is kind of standing in place for, for them, sort of the Solomon-like persona. And there are actually examples of literature written around the same time um, where an author would sort of place their words in the mouth of somebody who is more famous or that people kind of knew. So this is something that was, was common at that point. I couldn't think of any examples of that happening now, um, but it was something that happened pretty regularly in the writings around that time. So it's more likely that this person is calling themselves the teacher. They're drawing on the Solomon persona, right? The person who had gone, he'd done everything. He'd become the best, the biggest, the richest. Um, and he's still asking, what's the point? <laughs> Why are we doing this? He still has all these questions and frustrations about life. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the frustrations uh, that this teacher has. And I just realized I forgot to grab the clicker. Sorry, guys. Okay. Um, so what is, the, what is the teacher saying? What's he frustrated about? He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So like I said, not the most uplifting book. Uh, but pretty much the big point that he wants to make is that he thinks life is meaningless. And in fact, the word meaningless is used over 35 times in this short book of Ecclesiastes. Now, when you look at the word meaningless, um, it's the Hebrew word hevel. And what it actually means is breath, vapor, or smoke. That's kind of like the literal definition of it. And so it's thinking it means something that's here one minute and then gone the next, something that's transitory something you can't always see clearly, and you certainly can't grab a hold of. It changes shape, it's elusive, it's confusing. And now some people say that these ideas, this idea that life is transitory and confusing and, and kind of just this mist and a vapor, 
That's really what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. He's not saying that everything is meaningless. He's just saying it's, it's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp. You can't control it. And then others say, that seems like an idealistic spin on this. It really seems like this teacher thinks that things are meaningless. And I would say when you read it, I think there's a lot of truth to the fact that it, he describes life and describes the ways that life is confusing, that it is hard to grasp, that it's like, you know, just elusive and transitory and kind of comes and goes. And at the same time, if you sit down, I encourage you to this week, sit down and read some of Ecclesiastes, it's pretty hard to say that this guy didn't think that life was meaningless. I mean, like I said, he uses the word over 35 times, and he really just seems to be kind of almost despairing about not understanding what the point is. So as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at some of the reasons that the teacher seems to feel like life is meaningless. And because this is a wisdom series, we're going to talk about what pieces of wisdom can we take away from our reading of Ecclesiastes. So today, the two big reasons he seems to say that life is meaningless uh, is that time just continues on, right? Just continues and continues and continues. And because of that, therefore, any success we have, any accomplishments we make in life, they just don't matter. So we see this in verse 3 and 4. He says, What do people gain from all their labels or their labors uh, at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. So he says, Time continues on. People come and go. That's just the way the world is. And in fact, he says, The world is so much this way that even the natural parts of our world uh, show this. He says, The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. So he gives us this image of the sun as a person who kind of gets up, does their thing, and then hurries back to do it all over again. And it just repeats. It's like one big running track the sun is just stuck on forever and ever. And don't get him started about the wind, right? That just, it blows north and south and then back around and around and around. It's just like the sun, one big running track, lap after lap after lap. And the teacher says, this is meaningless. It's just repetitive. Nothing gets accomplished. So it sounds a little dramatic, right? And yet, how many of us at some point in the last year of this pandemic have felt like, I don't know what day it is. Everything is the same. Time just continues on and on. I've definitely heard, I've felt that, and I've heard other people say similar things, right? It's the same thing every single day. I get up, I make my coffee, I work from home, I watch Netflix, I go to bed, and I start the whole thing over again. Or maybe if you have kids, right? I get up, I change diapers, I chase my kids around, and then I just have to keep doing it over and over again. There's nothing to look forward to. Everything feels the same. So we can understand that. We can feel that frustration that the teacher in Ecclesiastes talks about. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He goes on, rubbing the frustration in a little bit further, saying, not only do you do the same thing day in and day out, but any accomplishments you make, any progress you make, it doesn't matter. Because he talks about how not only nature repeats itself, but history as well. So what has been done will be done again, Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? 
It was here already a long time ago, and it was here before our time. So you've probably heard this phrase just in conversation, that this idea that there's nothing new under the sun. Even if you come up with something that you think is this like brilliant new idea, it probably happened at some point in history. He goes on to say, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. He's really driving home the point that basically saying, look, no one's going to remember you. Doesn't matter how big you get, how much success you have in life. In the end, you're just going to be like that sun on a track, and no one's going to remember your success. So last spring, um, there was a, a sports documentary that came out, the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. I know a lot of people were talking about it, um, specifically here. And I finally watched it with Joel uh, recently. And if you haven't seen it, it's a documentary all about Michael Jordan. Um, and he, it kind of goes through his life and his time in uh, basketball. And he was a really big deal. If you don't know much about Michael Jordan, it's okay. I didn't when I watched the documentary, to be totally honest with you. Um, but he won six championships with the same team, three in a row, and then there was a break. It's very dramatic if you watch the documentary. And then there, they won three more after that. And the thing that stuck out to me the most in watching this documentary was that the first time Jordan won the championship, he was just like beside himself. He was so happy. You could see it. They had video footage of it all. He's like clutching the trophy and just bawling like a baby. He's so excited that they won and he feels so accomplished and like, yes, we did it. This is the success, the, the win that I wanted. But by the time he gets to the third championship, he looks just like relieved to get off the court. Like he looks like, I am just glad we're done with this. He's, yes, he's happy that they won, but he is like, you can just see he's so tired. And by the sixth one, I mean like even the reporters are talking about how tired Jordan looks and how, how hard it must be to just continue to have to do this over and over again. Because no matter how successful you get, it always means then how oh, I have to be more successful. I have to go back, I have to train again, I have to you know, get my team in shape and do this all over again. It just keeps going over and over. And there's plenty of other really big name people who have made similar comments. Madonna, Taylor Swift, David Foster Wallace, Tom Brady, even Tolstoy is on record talking about how once you get to kind of that top, you, you get your success, you reach this peak, it really sort of makes you feel like, what's the purpose? What am I doing here? Why am I doing this in the first place? And I think that's partly because when we're busy, when life is going on like normal, we're just focused on trying to reach our next thing, our next goal, our next success, whatever it is you find, define success as, right? You're probably not trying to win championships in the NBA, but there's probably something in your life that you are trying to accomplish or trying to do. And when we're busy, when we're doing that, we don't really notice these feelings of meaningless or these feelings of, you know, what, what am I doing? What's the purpose? But once you get there, or in our case, when everything in the world comes to like a crashing stop for a while, all of those questions start to creep back in. Now let's go back to Michael Jordan, right? Like he's really a great basketball player. He's known as one of the like the best of all time, but like that's not gonna be forever. Some people already think LeBron James is better. 
I don't know enough about basketball to pick a team or pick a side, but some people already seem like, yeah, he's not even the greatest anymore. And this doesn't just happen in sports, right? I, um, I have a friend who teaches uh, English in high schools, and she said that she, um, this week in her class, was talking about Leonardo DiCaprio. Somehow he came up, and not a single one of her high school students knew who he was. Leonardo DiCaprio, that is like mind-blowing to me. But it just goes to show you, even the people who we think are super famous, like they're gonna be forgotten. Nobody is going to remember us. And yes, I realize this is kind of a depressing message to start out with on a Sunday morning, but I think sometimes we need to be confronted with that reality. We need to be reminded that we are not the biggest deal, that our lives are not like the center of the universe, and that everything we want and desire are not the most important things. Because as we're going to take some principles of wisdom from this book, I think the first one is that the wise know they're not a big deal. Right? We all want to make an impact. We want to succeed. Um, whatever it is you're doing, we want to do well in it. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. But we become so worked up about becoming like the best, right? We want to be the boss, or we want to be the best parent, or we want to be, you know, maybe it's a creative pursuit you have on the side that you're like, I just really want to do this. It's something that, you know, takes up all my thought life. I'm thinking about all the time. But the wise know that these things are important. It matters what kind of parent you are. It matters how you do, how you work at your job. It matters, you know, how hard you try in school. But these things are not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. There's this line from one of the songs that we sing sometimes at Red City that I often think of. It's the hymn, uh, All Glory Be to Christ. And it's taken from a passage in James 4. So if you've heard the song, or if you remember this one, the, the verse goes, To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me, what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. And if you read it in James 4, he says, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. The line just always sticks out to me, though. What is your life? <laughs> because it's so direct. It kind of takes me off guard, right? I'm Midwestern at heart. So when I read things like that, I'm like, whoa, what, what is my life? I don't know. I need to think about that for a second. And it's a harsh reality that James says, right? You're, he says, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And it's so easy to get caught up in our own worlds and what we want, our own desires, our own comforts, that we forget that our lives here on earth are like a mist. We are truly not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. But here's the thing, James isn't saying that life is meaningless or that you will never make an impact. But he is saying that anything apart from God is meaningless. You will not make an impact in your life apart from God. And hopefully that's like actually an encouraging thing, a little bit freeing um, or relieving, that you don't have to do all of these things on your own, right? We get to do that with God. 
And so that's the good news. Uh, this is the second thing I think we take away from wisdom in Ecclesiastes, that the wise find meaning in their life through Christ. Jesus redeems the world's meaningless by actually subjecting himself to it. He comes to earth in all of its frustration and confusion and pain and suffering, and he subjects himself to that uh, in a way that the teacher probably in Ecclesiastes could have never even imagined. When he goes to the cross, he takes on all of the pain and suffering. He's separated from the Father, feels meaninglessness in like the biggest way that anybody could, dies a criminal's death. All of his friends and his followers leave him. He's totally deserted. And yet his death is the most meaningful thing for us because it redeems all of that difficulty of living here and gives us meaning in him. And that matters here and now. It gives us meaning in our lives as we go to work, as we raise our kids, as we be friends and neighbors and coworkers to people. The work that we do has purpose because we are brought into a bigger story that will not be forgotten. One of our values at Res City is God's story, not ours. We say that God is writing a story of love, justice, reconciliation, and new life, and he invites us to be a part of that story. So we don't have to go out and make our own legacy and to be a big deal on our own, have our own successes, because we've been brought into this story, the only true story that will last, the true legacy, the true story that gives meaning to suffering and pain in our world, the only one that can make sense of what we deal with here and now. And he invites us to be a part of that redemption work in our world right now. And he gives the things we do in our life eternal meaning. Because Jesus has been around since creation, and he's going to be around until the very end when we get to, he gets to be the king and everything is made new and we get to worship with him. Which means not only does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection give us meaning in the here and now, but it gives us a meaningful future to look forward to. And this is one point where uh, what we believe probably differs from what the author of Ecclesiastes, or the teacher in Ecclesiastes, believed. When you read through it, there's not really any sense that the teacher thinks there's an afterlife, or that there's something after uh, whatever is this current life. He kind of feels, it feels like he thinks that this is just all there is. And so it just feels meaningless, and then that's it. But we know that through Christ, we will have new life uh, in the life to come. We believe that Jesus is making all things new now, and he will come one day to make everything beautiful and perfect again. I'm going to read the last verse of that song I mentioned earlier, All Glory Be to Christ. I think it paints a really good picture of this. It says, When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. Now that's something to look forward to. <laughs> that's something to give us hope and meaning in our current life, no matter how hard things get. A life where God will live with us. He'll be our light. We'll be his people. And as Revelation says, there's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more death. It's beautiful. And it's hopeful. And it's meaningful. 
And it's something that should give us encouragement and motivation to follow this last piece of wisdom that I think we can take today. And that's that the wise seek Jesus's kingdom first. So how do we live a meaningful life in our time here on earth, knowing that there will be a time when everything is made new? I think it's easy to be like, well, I'll just wait until then. You know, I'll just kind of get through. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart, or I would add meaning, is also. So more literally, it just says, do not treasure for yourself treasures on earth. The stuff here, it can't give us meaning. Apart from God, your job can't give you meaning. Apart from God, your relationships, your friends, your family, they can't give you ultimate meaning. And you might think, yeah, it can. I've seen it. I've seen people who find their meaning in those things. But the thing about that is that it's just like Ecclesiastes says. If you put all of your meaning in things that are here and now, it's going to be fleeting. It might make you feel meaningful for a very short period of time, but it's going to be here and it's, then it's going to be gone, just like that. It's a mist, a vapor, a smoke. It will not last, and eventually it will just feel empty. But going on in Matthew 6, he's, uh, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So if you're looking for meaning uh, here on earth, everywhere, you look high and low and all the different things you try and get involved in, you're never going to find it. But when you seek God's kingdom first, you will. This verse comes after that part about storing up your treasures in heaven. Um, and it also, in there, talks a little bit about anxiety, feeling anxious about things. Um, and then Jesus says, you know, seek God's kingdom first and all these things will be added to you. And I was thinking a little bit about how I think most of the time when we think about anxiety, we just think about like stress and feeling um, like worked up about something that's to come, very worried about it. But anxiety can also look like restlessness, <laughs> right? And I think restlessness, feeling like, oh, what am I doing? I need to go do something. I need to like, something needs to change. I gotta, I gotta keep moving. I gotta keep going. I gotta keep succeeding. That's anxiety too. And it can come across like the cynical nature of Ecclesiastes. And Jesus says, look, quit looking for meaning in all these things. Quit being restless. Keep running, quit running around like you're looking for something and seek me and my kingdom first. The rest will fall into place. And maybe it won't. Maybe there are pieces of it that you're really looking for that won't fall into place. But those things won't matter as much when we're seeking Jesus and his kingdom first because we'll have our priorities straight and we'll be finding our meaning in him who can give us ultimate meaning. And I think this is an important reminder for where we are right now. Like I said earlier, it's easy to like just, you know, kind of be like, well, I'll just get through life now. I'll just wait for the future, right? We kind of just push aside these restless feelings, all the cynical thoughts. Uh, we just keep moving towards our goals. We just keep busy. And we've had some interruptions to that this year, and I think that's actually been good for us. It gives us a chance to pause and to reevaluate what we think and how we, you know, how we find meaning in our life. So I think it's good for us before we rush back to normal, which I think, you know, we're starting to see signs and hopes of things looking more like they used to. And I, I'm really excited about that. I think that's a great thing. And I want us to really take the time to think about 
what do we want that to look like? What is it going to look like for us when we kind of return to normal? And so I want us to think about what are the things that I'm, you know, pursuing, these desires, these hopes and meanings I'm finding in life, are they rooted in our own desires? Are they rooted in things of this world that will pass away? Or are they rooted in Jesus and is his, in his kingdom, in seeking him first above all else? And one of those things I think is that I've heard a lot of people talking and saying things like, yeah, I want to reevaluate. I want to, you know, cut back on things. I don't want to be so busy. I want to, like, have a more slower pace. And I think that's really good. God calls us to rest. And I've felt that, too. I've said very similar things to people. Um, and one thing that I've noticed in myself since then is that it's actually, like, it's kind of comfortable <laughs> to be, like, yeah, I don't have to go out and do things or be busy or, you know, connect with people, serve people, love people, because I'm just, you know, I'm taking time to rest and I'm taking time to be, to take care of myself. And I think that we need to evaluate some of those things too, right? Like at what point are we seeking the kingdom of self? Are we seeking, I want rest for myself. I want comfort. I want things to be easy. Uh, and are we going to have a hard time going back to being physically involved in people's lives and physically loving people and caring for people and serving others? Because I think it's going to be really easy to stay in our little, small, comfortable world that the pandemic has sort of forced us into. So I just think it's good for us to think about and reflect on those things. Let's reevaluate our lives. Let's, yes, do it for the kingdom of Jesus, for seeking his kingdom first, and for finding our full meaning in him. So as we kind of wrap things up and uh, head into another time of reflection and worship and communion, um, I want to think, like, I want you to really ask yourself what that looks like. I want you to think about where have I given in to meaninglessness in my life? Are there areas that you're like, I throw my hands up, man, I'm just done with this. This is like not worth it. I'm just done. I feel those frustrations that the Ecclesiastes teacher says. Like when, I, when Julie read those verses, I thought, yes, <laughs> that is what I feel. Where have you given in to that? And how can seeking Jesus' kingdom first uh, help you move towards him instead of towards those things? Or maybe just asking yourselves, what other things in life am I putting my meaning into that's going to ultimately leave me feeling meaningless? So uh, just thinking about that, I want you to really try and think about ways that you can prevent that from happening in your life, whether it's reevaluating what normal looks like when you go back to any sense of normal, um, or just ways that you can do that now. Super practical example, I've shared this with uh, the girls in my community group who are keeping me accountable to this, but every morning before I reach for my phone when my alarm goes off, I'm just trying to like quick pray that like God would be glorified in this day and pray through if I have anything going on that day that I'm like, okay, God, how can you work in this? How can I seek you first in these things? So I encourage you to get practical if, that's, if you need those practical steps. Uh, I encourage you to think about that. Or just think about the big picture. What does that look like in your life uh, moving forward? So I'm going to pray for us, and the worship team is going to come up. And then while they are singing the reflection song, we are going to take communion together. Um, so if you didn't get a communion cup when you walked in and you want one, just throw your hand up or kind of make a let us know. Someone will get that to you. Um, and if you're at home, you can grab your communion supplies if you have those ready. 
And I think taking communion after talking through this uh, passage in Ecclesiastes is a great reminder of the fact that Jesus subjected himself to meaningless so that we could find meaning in him. He went through the worst so that we wouldn't have to, that we would not have to experience the meaninglessness uh, that I think so many of us feel. All right, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to head into that time of reflection and communion. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you were willing to, willing to subject yourself to the meaningless, the frustration, the pain of this world, and even death itself. We confess that we do not always uh, look for you for our meaning. We often look to our own lives, our own successes, our own um, goals and things we want to accomplish, uh, and we lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing. So Lord, I just pray that you would uh, remind us that we are here to seek you and your kingdom first, that you have given us a a unique and special calling in that, um, and that we are going to feel most fulfilled and most meaningful when we are following you in that. So please, Lord, give us wisdom, give us perseverance, um, and give us you and your son most of all. In your name we pray. Amen.